0: This is the Home Pro Success Podcast, bringing you interviews with today's home improvement leaders and trades business game changers. Tune in to get actionable insights to grow your own business. Here's your host, Corey Phillip. Today, I've got Jamie Irvin, who built and exited a very systematized business on the show. In the next hour, we cover a lot of ground, including how having an established system not only increased efficiency for his business, but also increased the perceived value of their services. How Google AdWords helped them thrive in their first six months of business. His challenges in dealing with property managers as clients. That's something we can all relate to because I know from owning a trades business, property managers can be a very difficult bunch. His stringent process in hiring the right people. Your employees, they can also be a very difficult bunch. And what systems he established that paved his way to an early exit at a nice multiple on his earnings. Let's dive into this awesome conversation with Jamie Irvin. Today on the Home Pro Success Podcast, we've got Jamie Irvin. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. All right, now for those of you guys out there listening, Jamie started and sold an exterior cleaning business in 2016, so two years ago from the time we're recording this. And he did quite well in the sale, selling it for a very good price or premium, I should say, because of the systems he had in place. Jamie, why don't you talk about where the business was and what it was like when you sold it? So
1: the business was, yes, it was an exterior cleaning business. It was located in Vancouver, British Columbia. So just above Seattle, if anybody knows the Northwest, there's a lot of rain, a lot of moisture. So it was a perfect business for that market. And at the time of selling it, we actually were living the province over or the state over about 600 miles away. We had moved home to be with family and we were running the business remotely. So we had six employees and I think we had a high of 13 people once we brought in the seasonal workers. I remember the August 2015 before we sold it, we definitely had 13 people working. You know, it was a nice little business. It wasn't a big business. Uh, We were doing multi-six figure. We'd built it up from nothing over a six-year period. And it was wonderful to have the freedom to be living, you know, in our hometown with our family and having this income source coming in out of province, or if you're in the States, out of state, which is nice because sometimes, you know, depending on what market you live in, there could be ups and downs in the economy. And this gave us a feeling of stability and a feeling of security, as well as just it was awesome to be close to family after living away from them for almost 20 years.
0: Yeah, there's something powerful there about being close to your family. I will say that. And it sounds like you had kind of made this, well, you did make this into a well-oiled machine, essentially. You weren't a large company by any stretch of the imagination, but you had the key people in place so that you could step away from it. Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Well, you would think that that's what we did. And we had great people. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't so much that we had expert people or key people. It was that we had good people who were operating an expert system.
0: So it's all about the
1: system. That's right. We never could have moved away if it hadn't been for the systems that were in place.
0: And I guess that you sold it. I'm guessing the systems in place were a key factor in selling it because when you're selling a business, you know, that's relatively small, particularly a trades business, you know, a lot of times the owner is the system, the proprietor is the system. In your case, well, it sounds like you had systems in place and that lets you sell it at a higher earnings multiple.
1: Absolutely. When I think about it, what we would have gotten if we had just exited the business and we'd been working in it every day, we probably got a 3x multiple because of systems, because of the the fact that the person who bought it, they were in that position. They were working on the tools still. They were in their 50s. They were approaching an age where they just couldn't physically do the work anymore. They wanted to retire and they had no exit plan. And so they bought our business for the systems and we were able to structure the deal on a much longer timeline, meaning we weren't just looking at, okay, we're going to sell our business to you. And this year you're going to, You know, through this merger, your business, Mr. Buyer, is going to grow. We were looking at it in 10 years, you're going to be able to retire. And in five years, you're going to be able to be basically out of the business completely. And right away, you can take a nice long vacation that you've never been able to. So that was the emotional reasons why the person was interested in buying our business. I can finally take a vacation, I could be completely out of the business. You know, In a short period of time and long term, I can be completely retired and this business will provide a living for me and my wife and give me a retirement option. So it was hugely emotional for the buyer. But then also there was all the rational justification built into the fact that we had proved it because we weren't even living in the same
0: city that the business was running in. Absolutely. So many questions, so many little things we can talk about here and we will talk about. Now, you mentioned the owner. I I am interested in that. Who bought it? You said that they were in the trade. Was it somebody who was working for you or was it another company is kind of what I'm inferring. Somebody else that already had a small-hour operation, but couldn't quite figure out what to do with it or was probably overwhelmed like many service business owners are. Who was it? It was a friendly competitor. Okay. Friendly competitor. Yeah. Yeah. It was another guy and he had actually
1: really been an integral part of us even getting into the business that's that's another story but he was at that point when I started in this business where he was completely overwhelmed he'd been in it for 20 years he didn't know how to get off the tools himself he was the bottleneck so the only way that he could grow was to add subcontractors and I actually originally was one of his subcontractors and then I broke away and built my own business and come full circle he couldn't believe what we had accomplished in six years something he couldn't have done you know in the 25 years at that point now because it had been a few years later so yeah he'd been in it like 25 years and, and he's like I don't get it like how are you moving away it's not gonna work and then he watched and he's like it is working in fact it not only is it working it's growing I don't understand that and so in the end he really just bought the business for the systems
0: Absolutely. I can see that. And that's certainly something of value. If you're you you know already in the trade, you can't figure out how to get out of it, buy a business that has the systems, has the people in place. And then you essentially just take your customer base and your employees and migrate them into the system. That just sounds so on point.
1: Yeah. And the, the result of it was that, so we sold it to them in 2016. I stayed on as a consultant and kind of just helped them with the merger, helped them to learn how to institute the systems. And my wife and I have we very integral in the business, but the result was that in 2018, the spring of 2018, they went to Ireland and France for two months. And that was the first time they would ever be able to do that in their working careers, owning that business. And so by us you know, layering our systems on top of the infrastructure that he had, the business actually grew by three times. So it 3 x from January 2016 until 2018. And they took off for two months and toured Ireland and France. And I've got a little video of them in front of the Eiffel Tower. And yeah, it was it was incredible. What was great about it is that under my ownership, the business did what I wanted it to do. But then post my ownership, the business continued to do what it was designed to do for the new owner. And so they're on track and he's working less than two days a week. And they're on track for full retirement much sooner than we had originally anticipated when we laid out the plan.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. I really want to know what systems you feel like every service business needs in place and the you know key systems that needs to be in place. But let's take a step back to when you started the business. When did you start it? And then well, I guess we'll get into you know where your first customers came from, because that's always a challenge for startups is getting the first customers. Well, I wouldn't say through the door, but Onto the project, queue. So why did you start this business? And well, I think you said six years you'd started. So you probably started in 2010. Is that correct? 2009, actually, about halfway through 2009. So let's go back to
1: 2008. It's just before the stock market crash. And I have a business partner and I, and we're looking to exit our corporate jobs and start a management consultancy business. So in January of '09, I quit my job. That previous fall, the stock market had crashed, but I ignored all of that. That didn't matter. And I started my own business with this partner and we started down the road of running a management consultancy business because he was an operations guy and I was a sales and marketing guy. So, you know, it just seemed like a logical fit. And we made the fatal assumption, which is that because we understood how to do sales and we understood how to run a business, that we understood how to run a consulting business that provided those services to its clients. And very quickly, my business partner realized that this wasn't for him. And so he exited. And you know, we're good friends to this day. There was no bad blood between us about it. But it did result in a reality where my wife and I now had half of the Anticipated money that was supposed to be there to launch this business was gone, and our money that we had put in had been exhausted. And so, literally, it was June of two thousand nine. I had seven hundred dollars left, and in two weeks, I had a twelve hundred dollar rent payment, and I didn't know what to do. And so, I run into this guy who ended up buying my business, you know, a few years later, and he basically says, "Look, I got too much work. I can't handle it. If you can get the tools to the job site," I'll loan you the tools. I'll teach you how to do it and you can subcontract off of me. So I had $700 left. I found a little utility trailer I could pull behind my Ford Explorer and we started. Just like that. You were a cleaning
0: subcontractor at that point. Just like that. Had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. So you had never done any, you know, well, at least professional grade exterior cleaning before that pressure washing, window washing, none of that?
1: No. I mean, when I was like right out of high school, I did window cleaning for one day, hated it. And I did power washing as a summer job once and hated it and quit. Like this is the last thing I wanted to do. And you have to understand too, this was like a fall from grace, if you will. Like a year before this, I'm a top sales person that's making like maximum commission. I'm, you know, I'm I'm killing it. And that's why I had enough money to go off and start my own thing. And a year later, it's all gone. I'm broke. It's 2009. The Great Recession's on. Nobody's hiring. I can't go anywhere. I'm stuck. And now I'm cleaning people's gutters to survive. Yeah, it was a little bit of a humbling experience. But I knew two things. One, I promised my wife that no matter what, I would take care of the family financially. And two, I was still an entrepreneur. So, you know, it wasn't the path I expected. And, you know, that's where I was. So I, and I didn't have a problem with hard work. I grew up in New Brunswick in the Eastern Seaboard and we worked hard and we were poor growing up. So working on a farm, we had nothing, you know, hard work was not an issue. So I didn't like the work. I didn't like what I was doing, but at least I wasn't going to go and have to live on the street with my family, right? Like I was able to make enough money to make that first rent payment two weeks later. That was how we got started. But if I analyze it from you know, my business mind, there was a couple key things in place. So one, we pre-sold a customer before we started the business, right? This guy, this guy says, look, I'll, I'll subcontract work to you. So in that first year, we did $90,000 with him. So my very first customer you know, produced enough revenue to keep the business alive and provide a very modest living for my family. And I would say that that's probably one of the most important things that people who are considering starting a business need to understand just because you know how to do the work. You see, I didn't know how to do the work, so it should have failed, right? Most people think, well, I know how to do the work. I'm a carpenter. I'm a tradesperson. I'm, you know, I've got my ticket. I've been doing this for 15 years. I really know what I'm doing. I should start a business. I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew how to run a business and you got to get that right. And then the other thing was I found a customer and I negotiated a deal before I started. So I had confidence going forward because I'd already done the negotiations and put in place that first
0: customer. Yep, You already had some revenue coming in there, right? Well, from the time you decided to do it. So, I mean, you know, when you said, yes, you know, I'll do this work for you. You can train me. I got a trailer. I'll buy a trailer. At that time, were you in your head seeing this becoming an actual business for you? Or were you just thinking this was something you were going to do for the interim until you figured something else out?
1: Absolutely not. This was survival mode. And I continued for six more months trying to make my management consultancy business work. I remember the, the the day that it happened, it was like unbelievable. So in the morning, I'm in a suit. And I'm pitching this company on a project, pretty large scale project. The HR manager is there. She's one of the three people in the, in the boardroom and I rush home and I change into my work clothes and I hook up the trailer and off I go to clean the gutters and whose house do I come to? Oh my gosh, no way. The HR manager had responded to one of our website ads on Google and had no idea that it was the same person and she was a wonderful person immediately she understood what was going on she kept my little secret and you know in my mind i was going to just carry on and i was going to do what i had to do and i was going to live my dream and this whole contracting thing was just a bump in the road it was just a necessary component of the story of my management consultancy business but after 6 months it became very clear that the contracting business was a far better more profitable and there was more opportunity in that moment in those market conditions. And so we made the decision on a Friday morning over coffee to shut down my dream and to become a full-time exterior building cleaning professional.
0: Right on. That reminds me of one of probably back to GCA, my company, Gulf Coast Aluminum year one, this would have been 2012 or 2013, somewhere in there, but one of our customers was unhappy for something. They called the office and the owner was supposed to go out and meet with them and that was me. So at that time I was 22, I go out there, I knock on this lady's door and I see, you know, somebody look through the blinds and nobody comes and answers the door. I'm like, all right, that's weird. So I just stand there for a few minutes. And after that, my phone rings and it's the office. And someone from my office is calling me. So I answer it and they say, yeah, well, it's the lady whose house you're at. She said that she was supposed to be meeting the owner of the business and she's wondering why there's a 20 year old kid at the door. (laughs) and the office person, you know, is like, well, the owner is in his 20s, and then after that, I knocked on the door again, and she opened up, and, you know, I managed to smooth things over and get things pretty cordial, and she's finally like, yeah, I mean, when I was hiring your company, I thought you guys were, you know, this huge big franchise type of deal or something. I didn't realize that, you know, this was just a small business. And I'm like, no, you know, I, I started it two years ago. I kind of rounded up on that one. I think at that point, I didn't say just a year ago. But anyways, I smoothed things over and made things whole on that made the customer happy. But I'll, I'll never forget that moment. You know, I don't think many people in their entrepreneurial experience have something like that, where the customer is just almost not believing that you're actually the owner, so much to the point where as they call the office, because they're expecting, you know, trades business looking established, they're expecting to see, you know, an old... Older gentlemen show up, not a 20 not year old kid out there.
1: Well, you actually are speaking to something. I think that unfortunately, the average contractor is that person. You know, they're an experienced tradesperson who's been doing it for many years. And one day they decided, hey, I can do this for myself. And they start a business and maybe they even hire a couple guys. And, you know, it's them and they're two guys driving around in a van or a truck and they're a business owner. And that is what customers expect to see, and and I know that as we expanded our business, as we as we started to create systems, as you know, as people, some of our customers were even upset. Like, well, where's Jamie? Why isn't Jamie here doing the work? Well, Jamie owns the business, (laughs) and and I didn't didn't tell them, but it's like Jamie never wanted to do this work in the first place. So it was a bit of a transition for us, certainly, as we started to go down the road once once we made the decision to fully commit and go into it hundred percent, we immediately started in instituting a new business plan and that was all around systems and it did we had some customers who were a little upset because we no longer looked like what they were used to seeing and I strongly believe that the status quo is all wrong, you know just because you know how to be an electrician does not mean you know how to run a business that provides electrical services. So it's, you know, it was definitely a challenge we had to overcome maybe a little different than yours, but kind of on the similar vein.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back though to your story. You, Six months in, decide this is going to be the full-time gig. Who's your next client and where do they come from? Do you just stay working for general contractors as a sub? Do you guys target residential homeowners? What next? Six months in, you're going to make this the real business, the full-time gig. What do you do? And where do you get your next customers?
1: Well, we had talked to the guy that had kind of introduced us to the business and said, like, back in the 90s, what did you do? And he said, well, I don't know. I took out a newspaper ad and I started getting local residential customers and then I went down to the local property management offices and gave them a business card. So I said, well, you know, it's 2009, 2010, that's not going to work. But I said, what's the equivalent of that? And I did something that I didn't realize how smart it was. I got into Google AdWords big time when Google AdWords was cheap and when nobody really understood what a search engine ad product really was and why it would work for their business. So I didn't really understand how intuitive and how smart that was. I just kind of was like what's the equivalent of a newspaper ad in 2009. So I set those up and then I hired somebody to well actually I built my own website for the first couple of years and then eventually we hired someone because I just I wasn't a web designer. But taking that step to get ahead of the curve on the ad products was really, really integral to us kind of moving beyond the subcontractor model and becoming a standalone business with its own client list. And then I had always been involved in B2B sales in some capacity in my corporate years. And so I was very comfortable going down to the property management companies and, you know, doing a face-to-face sales call with them. And so I did that. And eventually, you know, it's tough when you start with, especially with property management, because they see the startups all the time. They see people coming and going, you know, in the trades all the time. And so they don't want to really take a risk on someone new. And so, you know, I remember this one property manager was like, well, you can come to my house and do some work at my house and I'll see the quality of it. And, you know, I had to prove myself. And so, but slowly, but surely we convinced property managers. and, And then I also looked at this B2B sales model and it's kind of an older way of doing it. And I realized that you know, as the newer, younger property managers were coming on board, the best way to get them up front was through the same ad products. And then as social started to come on through social. So we kind of changed our system as time went on to continue to try to stay ahead of the curve on technology and and communication style. But at the end of the day, to make a deal happen, you still have to put on your sales hat and you have to make a deal.
0: Yeah, that that is something that you can't really take out of trades businesses and you know, going the way of technology, the face-to-face contact still makes a huge difference. And well, obviously it did for you starting up and then you shifted more into, you know, Google AdWords entirely Google AdWords. Gosh, back in 09 must have been <laughs> must have been a gold mine. I remember when I first started in 2012, 2013, it was just it was a gold mine, you know what I mean? The clicks were cheap. The people that would click on things were very engaged and they would call real quickly. And today, you know, that's kind of changing a little bit. Obviously, the cost per click has gone up, but it seems like with Google kind of shoving those ads more in people's face more people click on them, but they have less intent when they do. So it's such a struggle. You hit it kind of right at the right time there with that. I just wanted to add one thing about that too, because
1: we went through a progression. So Google AdWords Express, I don't know if you remember that, but Google AdWords Express was Google's like, hey, you don't know what you're doing product. And it was awesome in 2010 and 2011. But by 2012, It was so expensive because all the people who I was competing against didn't know what they were doing online and they started using Google AdWords Express. And so at that point, when I noticed that the conversion rates started to drop, I immediately switched over to Google AdWords, which was a different product. And I hired somebody to build the ads for me. And so I think because we were very proactive that way, we stayed ahead of our competition. And that would carry on today. I mean, if I was running the business today, I would be... Transforming my company into a media company, and I would be following the Gary Vee format and really trying to hit people on Instagram, on Facebook ads, and taking advantage of the newest technology as it came along. So it's not a static thing, it's very dynamic. And I can directly attribute some of our success to our willingness to just put in the hard work. Like I spent over 300 hours on my first website, and it sucked because I didn't know what I was doing. But that year, it generated something like $80,000 in internet sales. So you got to put in the work, you got to do, I I call it doing the reps, you just got to put in the reps, learn the way it works, figure out what works, what doesn't, and then just do more of the stuff that works. And then realize that a year from now, it probably won't work anymore. And you're gonna have to do something different.
0: That's so true. I mean, just in the last 10 years, I've seen internet marketing change. As you said, it used to be pay per click was the kind of end all be all, but now you have to pair your pay per click with your Facebook ads, display remarketing ads, Instagram ads, and then an email nurturing sequence. There's so much stuff that's constantly changing, improving. And then you've got kind of what I call content bombardment, which is all of our audiences, the people we're trying to sell to, they're getting more marketing messages from so many other businesses that it's harder to stay in their face. So, marketing is constantly constantly evolving, constantly changing, and it is getting more difficult.
1: And ironically, after 10 years of this progression when it comes to internet marketing, we've come full circle where now if you have the ability to go face to face, it's like a secret weapon.
0: You are so right. You are so right on that. You know, I do a lot of things with marketing. Everybody listening to this, you guys probably know, I know, you know, marketing inside and out for these trades businesses. What we're looking at now is, hey, look, we're already maxing out all of our internet, you know, marketing stuff we can do. We've got competitors, you know, basically stalking us and copying what we do because they know that we're the innovator in that space. So where can we can improve and what can we do? Well, let's go back out there and let's improve our selling process, which is something that we've really overlooked because for the longest time, it was just a matter of let's just generate leads, you know, so many leads that it really doesn't matter what our selling process is. We'll you know, we'll pick up more than we need rather than doing that. Hey, let's focus on the face to face aspect and build connections. And I see that I see that every day. I mean, I, what, what you just said there about, you know, the secret being face-to-face connections again, it's so true.
1: Yeah, 100%. And that's something that I think it's a good lesson for all of us that as technology changes, I mean, let's face it, at some point, we're going to be doing our presentations probably with a VR headset on. So you better be able to transmit a message that resonates with people in an authentic way. And I just used a bunch of buzzwords that is almost become meaningless, but you've got to find a way to add meaning to those words. Like what does your authentic self look like? How does it sound? And you've got to be able to talk to a customer and explain to them, look, you're going to get a basic level of service from all of the people in this town, right? Because they wouldn't be in business otherwise. And here's why we're different. And it's not because our features and benefits of our products or services are that differentiated. It's because of this reason and that reason. And it's those soft skills. It's those things that people care about that you've got to figure out and you got to add into the business process. It's not just about, you know, numbers and spreadsheets and, you know, what colors you use, like all those things in your marketing branding, all those things are important. But without that I don't know, just being real and without being able to generate some sort of an emotional response to what you're doing, you're not going to be able to move forward. And technology is not going to be the be all and end all. It's simply augmenting what we need to do at a fundamental level.
0: I couldn't agree anymore with you. I know personally I've wasted a lot of time on trying to track data metrics and stuff with marketing. And I mean while it does work to a certain extent, you generally don't get as good of a return on the investment of your time as if you actually just focus on making connections and making your marketing authentic and you know the operations end of your business. On that note, well let's shift gears. Go back to your story. You've got the marketing down you need employees. Where did you find and hire your first employees from? And how did you know, you know, they were the right fit? Or I'm sure you quickly found out the ones that you thought were the right fit when you first hired them were not the right fit. And you needed to readjust some things. Where did you go at that point? Because while you're still basically just you and your wife, I think running this operation, you're going to make it your full-time gig. What next? You need some employees so that you can step out and the customers can start asking, where's Jamie at?
1: Well, I I knew I wanted to build a different kind of business. I wanted to build a better business. And I knew that I I still didn't know that much about this trade. So I knew that hiring people who knew what they were doing was going to be actually a disadvantage to me. More than likely, what was going to happen is they were going to just start their own thing and piggyback off of what I'm doing. And I was going to literally become a factory for competitors. So I had to do something different. And at the time, there was a lot of construction workers that were laid off. And so I tapped into my personal network and I looked around and said, who's laid off, who's not working? And these people, because they were construction workers, had relevant experience, meaning that they were able to do the physical labor and they were used to it. So even though this wasn't the construction business, You know, it was kind of like a a close cousin and it was almost an advantage that they knew nothing about the exterior cleaning business. And so I hired them and I put them in a position to be successful and it created a bond between us that really helped me to understand something that was going to be fundamental for the future, but I'll stick to just that point in time. So I hired a couple guys and I told them, I said, look, I don't know how much work I can give you. I've got a month's worth of work booked up. You know, it was like December. And I said, but as long as I have work, I promise you will have work. And they said, that sounds great. Cause the alternative is sitting at home going broke and we can't do that. So they came to work for us and uh, we onboarded one and then we quickly onboarded the second one. And right away, it became obvious to me that I needed some systems because I would ask them to do something and they would go and do it and they wouldn't do it the way I wanted it done. And so I was training them and teaching them and say, well, look, when you clean a gutter, I want you to do it this way. When you power wash, you know, vinyl siding, you have to turn the pressure down so you don't damage it. And there was all these little things, right? That I had learned. So many little things. So many little things. And they weren't They just weren't able to replicate the results that I wanted to, you know, achieve with my business. They weren't doing it the way I would do it. And I said, there's got to be a way to get them to do this. And remember, I told you we had a trailer. And one of the things I was really concerned with was that that trailer got hooked up correctly because if it didn't and we're flying down the highway and it lets go, somebody could get killed and then I'd be liable. Right. And even though I had insurance, I just didn't want that.
0: No, even with insurance, even with $10 million or insurance, million dollars, billion dollars of insurance, you don't, you just don't want that.
1: Yeah. You just don't want to be responsible for someone else being injured. So I I thought to myself, how do I get these guys to hook that trailer up correctly? And so I created a spreadsheet with a little checklist. It was really, really rudimentary and simple, simple, simple. But as long as they followed the checklist, the trailer got hooked up correctly and I had no worries. And when both guys started hooking up the trailer the way I would hook it up using this little checklist, then instead of having to enforce them to do the job right, I just had to enforce following the checklist, which was much easier because all I had to do was, hey, did you hook that trailer up? Yes. Did you follow the checklist? No. Okay, go get it. Make sure you've done it right. And the guys just got sick and tired of me telling them that, so they knew that it was easier to just use the checklist. <laughs> it was just it was just simpler. It's like, oh, Jamie's not going to leave the job site without us showing him a checklist that's been followed. And that was the birth of the systemization of the entire business. That was the beginning of it. And so I just started to build systems for each component of the business. And I didn't get very far into it. And then disaster struck and I had an accident. I fell 20 feet and I broke my pelvis. I punctured my abdomen. And I almost died in the ER that evening and I was off work now for six months and the business is only like a year old. It's like 2010, fall of 2010. And so now my guys have to go to work every day while I'm laid up in a hospital and then home recovering and going to a physical rehabilitation program. For six months, I couldn't work. But those systems were enough to keep the business going and as i started to get close to coming back to work my wife and i realized that without those systems in place without those two guys working for us not only would we have suffered personally from the accident but then the business would have literally gone out of gone under yeah and it didn't now that was just like a total re- revelation to me and i saw the future and i knew in that moment I didn't understand where it was going to exactly take me, but I knew in that moment the path I was going to take. And so we very, very seriously started working on every system There was inventory lists for all of the equipment. There was how to do the jobs. There was ongoing safety training. My wife and I then got real serious about the front end of the business and our estimate pro systems and our marketing systems and just the whole business. And we ended up with like a four-inch binder that basically I could give you that binder and you could run our business.
0: Wow. So let me ask. What do your systems look like? Because you kind of mentioned, you know, several things in there, estimating operations, and then even a trailer hookup. Were most of your systems just checklists? Operationally, most of the systems to this day
1: are just simple checklists. The simpler, the better. Do not get all complicated on this people hear systems and they think that you've got to build some sort of fancy you know program and you're going to have to do coding and all that none of that is necessary operationally it's just like clipboards and checklists and just make sure the guys do it the right way the same way every time the front end of the business is a little different we like to use a program called Process Street. It's a systemization software that really is helpful, and it, it'll spit out those checklists for you that you can print. But then also we went to our web designer and we said, look, we need our workers to be able to log in to the back end of our website and to be able to submit job reports and to be able to communicate with multiple departments in multiple cities because our, our invoicing is done out of vancouver but our estimates and our scheduling is done in alberta so we built a back end to our website that allowed and again it's very very simple they log in they click a few buttons saying yes we did this yes we did that they add some notes and then when they hit the enter button both our invoicing and our estimate people are notified and then they're able to complete the the transaction with the client so we just started to onboard a lot of those front end things and of course with marketing and and our estimate system and things like that you know it was just about analyzing like what's the simplest way of doing this what's the most effective way of doing this and what is the way that we should do this that makes the customer the happiest and so an example with our estimate system is is that we were able to get it down to 24 hours in writing And like our pricing did not change after that was put in writing, unless the customer changed the scope of work, that price was guaranteed. So it wasn't an estimate.
0: You were making sure that everyone got an estimate within 24 hours of calling in, I'm guessing?
1: Yeah. From contacting us and we didn't like, we also very quickly identified that calling in was not good for us. We didn't like it. And it wasn't even as that good for the customer because they would transmit things verbally, things would get lost in translation. You know, we were thinking in industry terms, they were thinking in homeowner terms. So we pushed all of our customers to do things in writing with on, you know, forms on our website and things like that. We made it as simple for them as possible. The customers who didn't want to do that no longer were our customers. And the customers who love that, we found more of those people. And so everything then got to a very, very, e- it just became easier. Every aspect of the business. Like it, it, with that estimate system, I mean, it didn't matter if you were a 100-unit townhouse complex or you were a 1,000-square-foot rancher. You got your estimate in writing in 24 hours. And that was a differentiation in the marketplace. It put us head and shoulders above a lot of our competitors. Sometimes it was taking two and three days for them to get a quote to them. We were getting it done in 24 hours. We also then quickly realized, hey, you know, our customers are all asking these same eight questions. So why not include those frequently asked eight questions on every estimate? And, you know, it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And it was just a process of innovate something, test it, look at the results fix the problems innovate a little more test it again
0: when it works leave it alone that's it so many people think it's just like oh let's just you know set up a system and then poof it works or they think that you know that's what everybody else does or that's what the big businesses do that are successful but there's always trial error and failure on it and that's what you're gonna have to work through in your small business
1: and you got to ask your customers did you like this what do you want right it's, it's an amazing formula. Okay. I'm going to give you the formula to success in business. Ask your customers what they want and give it to them.
0: That's it. And then ask them again after you've given them what they want. And be like, did you like that?
1: <laughs> and just and just Rinse and repeat. Rinse and
0: repeat. <laughs> yeah. rinse and repeat on that. So tell me a little bit more about your estimate process here because I'm not fully following it you know, did you guys send somebody out to do these estimates? And then your guys went into this back end of your website and what kind of notes would they, you know, put in? Like, let's just, you know, kind of role play almost. Hey, I'm Corey. I got a house in Vancouver. I wish I did have a house in Vancouver. I love Vancouver, by the way. So I got my, you know, my fictitious house in Vancouver that one day I will own. I need my gutters cleaned. What's up, Jamie? What's the next step? Well, thanks very
1: much for calling, Corey. We have a very, very easy estimate system that we like our customers to follow. So here's the website address I want you to go to. You're going to fill out a quick form. It's going to ask you all the pertinent information. Now, why I want you to do this and why I won't give it to you over the phone is this ensures that I can give you an estimate in writing within 24 hours. That price that I give you will not change unless you change the scope of work. So if you go ahead and just go over to that site, And my estimate girl will talk to you within 24 hours and she will send you an email with all of the details in writing. How does that sound? Sounds pretty good. Okay. Here's the website. So now you take the website, you fill out the form. It takes you less than 60 seconds because it's all click, 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 you know, and a little bit of, and then you hit submit. My estimate girl gets the email and she then looks up the property. Now, remember we're exterior work. So everything could be seen with Google Maps. So she brings up the property on Google Maps. She uses the scale to measure the home. She now, we now know exactly the amount of square footage. We also go to street view and we see the pitch of the roof. We see what the roof is made out of, all that kind of stuff. And then we, then she, what she would do in the early years, now when I say girl, it's my wife. My wife would then look at historically other homes in the neighborhood because in Vancouver you know certain developments were done in certain years and so all the homes are pretty much the same so we would find one close and say yeah that's pretty much the same one and we would look at historically how many hours did it take what problems did we have was there something that the developer did wrong that was causing failure you know 5 years out 10 years out etc so then she would put all that information in a in a written estimate which was also a very simple template that Then got turned into a PDF and she would email it to you and she would ask you to email back and confirm whether or not you wanted to move ahead. And if you had any questions to please call her. And so sometimes the customer would call and ask a clarifying question and other times we would just get an email back saying, go ahead. So that would trigger the scheduling system, which then was a whole process of getting which contractor assigned and what date and getting the date to the customer. But that's pretty much how the system worked. And it was that historical data. We were really good at keeping records. And that's why we wanted our workers to submit a job report because then they gave us exactly how long it took. And a lot of our clients, they started getting us to do the work every year. So we would actually know, you know, last year we did it in 52 hours. This year it took 68. Why? And we go find out. Now, there was probably about 10% of the time, 15% of the time, that she just could not get enough information online and so that would trigger a second system which was to send somebody to the job site and to measure it up and take pictures that were not you know available online and so you know that happened and we had a we had a system for that too
0: Okay, so you answered basically all my questions. So I was kind of wondering, you know, when you said that you were making everybody fill out an online form, I was thinking, well, what happens when somebody calls the company? Because a lot of times that's just a total shut off. Uh, we had done that actually at my company, and briefly tried that, where you'd call in, and for the publicly displayed numbers on the website, they would say, if you're, you know, if you're requesting an estimate, please visit our website and fill out your information. If you're an existing customer, please look to the e- or look to the signature line in the email and contact our, you know customer phone number or whatever we had at the time. And we tried that for about a month and that did not go well at all. So you actually have somebody answering the phone and then, you know, Hey, we're here to help you, you know, whether, you know, so that way they know there's a live person. They know they can get someone if they have a problem after they hire you. So you got some trust there, but then ultimately that person on the phone is like, all right, well, for our estimates, you do have to request that online. Here's the website.
1: Yeah, and that was really critical because we kind of recognize that too, that people do, they want to talk to somebody, they want self-serve options, but they, but they want to know, Hey, if something goes south here, am I going to be able to talk to a real person? And what we found was by having, and to this day, peer pressure still has a live person answering the phone. And that was just a critical part of relationship building.
0: Yeah. So I guess for everyone out there listening, don't think you can't answer their phone just because you've got it online. While the online forms are all nice and all that, you still got to have someone answering the phone in the trades businesses. Now, real quick, what, did, you know, what would your people that would go out to do an estimate, what kind of things would they upload or input into the backend? Because that's really intriguing to me.
1: For us, you know, there was probably three or four things we needed to know. Like what was the pitch of the roof? What was the roof made out of? And then what were the measurements of the building? And then the fourth thing would be, was there anything that was going to cause some challenges? Like, for example, every one of our trucks had a 32-foot ladder, a 24-foot ladder, and a 16-foot ladder, I think it was. No, maybe it was a 20. But anyway, we had these three ladders. We had a 40-foot ladder that kind of floated around between the trucks. We didn't carry that with us everywhere we went. So if the guy goes to the the back and he sees, oh man, you know, there's a bit of a slope to their backyard, that, that little piece of gutter on the left side of the deck, that's about 35 feet off the ground. We're going to need the 40. So that would be a note, a notation that would be made. So we knew how big the building was. We knew the square footage. We knew this, how the steepness of the roof That told us a lot about safety equipment. And we knew what the roof was made out of because, you know, a tile roof that is very different to work on than an asphalt roof or a cedar shake roof. So like with a cedar shake roof, if it's wet, you need cork boots. So there's just all these little notations that would have to be made so that when the guys showed up, they had the necessary tools to do the job right the first time.
0: Absolutely. That's so key too. And I say this a lot. In a trades business, labor efficiency is probably the single most important metric you have. And if you send your guys out to a job site, or if you're still out there, you know, doing the work yourself, you still have a tool in hand, you know what it's like when you get out to a project site and you don't have everything that you need. It, it's just such a costly mistake that is easily avoided. When you get out there, you don't have a long enough ladder, now you got to go back to the shop and get it or rent it or wherever you get it from. You're just wasting so much time there. And if you've got two guys running around in a truck sorting out materials, and trying to pick things up because they were unprepared when they get out there that can easily easily add up to several hundred dollars in direct labor costs by the time you add in workers comp and payroll taxes and then if you factor in opportunity costs, the value of what they could have earned had they not you know had to go screwballing around to pick up things and you know fix what should have been done right from the beginning That stuff far outweighs and dwarfs the little expenses that people try to nitpick. I always see that everyone likes to, you know, say, Oh, where can I save some money? Print the income statement, and then, you know, go go to kind of the below the line items. Maybe we can, you know, make everyone turn the lights off at night. We'll turn the AC up during the day and save a few pennies here and there. But that stuff is well just pennies relative to the amount of labor that you can waste if you're not running things efficiently and they don't have the tools and resources they need to get the jobs done when they're dispatched in the morning.
1: Yeah, and that's like what I call the 10,000 foot viewpoint, right? But we can go up a little higher and we can also look. So operationally, those are all the factors. I agree with you 100%. Those were exactly my feelings on it. But there was also another side to it because I remember many times neighbors would come out and they would be like, man, you guys look like you know what you're doing. Give me a quote of my house too. And if you're running around and you look disorganized, people are like, ugh. I don't want to call those guys. Look at them. They don't even they didn't even bring the right ladder. <laughs> when a crew rolls up, like we had trucks and trailers. So when a crew rolled up and four guys got out and they all put on their harnesses and they all put on their high elevation helmets and they had exactly the right tools. Like it looks like a well-oiled machine because it was. And so people instinctively are like, I want to do business with that company. And they thought we were much bigger in scope as a company than we actually were because we projected that image of we knew what we were doing. And what was really funny is that I sometimes, you know, I was still working on the tools and a guy would come up and he'd say, Hey, I'd like you to work on my house as well. Can you give me an estimate? And I'd say, yeah, just phone Jennifer and she'll, you know, she'll get you to fill out a form and, and he'd be like, what? you can't give me an estimate. Are you the owner? And i would be like, yeah, I am. And they'd say, and you can't give me an estimate. And I'd say, no, it's not part of our system. I said, the reason we can show up and know what we're doing is the same reason why you need to call Jennifer and you need to fill out the form because it's part of an overall system that ensures that you're going to get what you're seeing here at your neighbor's house. Man, that was effective.
0: I like that. It ensures that you're going to get what you're seeing right here. That's kind of a real zinger at the end of that whole thing. Because I've had to have that conversation before and sometimes it doesn't go so smoothly, but it is a necessary one to have.
1: Yeah. And I think it's all about having confidence in in what you've done because you've thoroughly tested it. You know it works. And you can just look the person in the eye and be like, look, this is the best way to get it done. And I'm not deviating because when I have in the past." not only do I regret it, but, but my customers have regretted it. So you got to trust us on this, you know, and sometimes you just have to have that heart to heart and get real with the person. And it's also good to have some of those things that, and maybe that's my sales background, but to have some of those lines kind of locked and loaded and ready to go. I'll give you another one. Guy says, Hey, uh, if I pay cash, do you take the tax off that? I used to love it when they would say that and their garage door was open. Because I'd look at them in the eye and I'd say, absolutely not. But now you know we're honest and we won't come and steal your, and I would look into their garage and pick something out. (laughs) We won't steal your kid's bike or we won't steal your car underneath that, you know, because we're honest. And then I would laugh to keep it lighthearted. And the person would just be like, ooh, yeah, okay. And I never had a person after saying that, not once did I have a person kind of push it. They would just be like, yeah, absolutely. I, I see where you're coming from. And the best one, the best one was Canada Revenue Agency. One of the employees at Canada Revenue Agency, which is our IRS, asked me that and then admitted after the fact that they worked for the Canada Revenue Agency. I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> we had a good laugh about that one. So you have to be prepared and you have to be confident in what you're doing.
0: Yeah, I'm certainly going to use that line next time someone asks us for a cash discount. And it's funny that you say that. We actually had an IRS agent ask for a cash discount here, and that was a few years ago. And we did not give a cash discount on that. And that was just because that's our policy. I don't do that. I play by all the rules. But I like the way you phrase that, and you know, kind of presenting that as an honesty. We're not going to cheat them. We're not going to cheat you. We're not going to steal from them. We're not going to steal from you. So, so much in that. And where was I going here? Oh, back to you know how you're saying you know rolling up all prepared, Besides for the fact that you're efficient and you get more work completed and it presents such a professional image, it also lets you sell more projects. That's a given because you know, you're going to get that referral base, but it lets you sell more projects at a premium price. Customers will pay more for that and they'll pay more. When I say premium, they'll pay more in terms of value to you, pay more cash to you than what it's going to cost you to deliver that service. So always keep that stuff in mind.
1: Yeah. And what we did is, is we identified a profile of what kind of client we wanted to work for. When we ran into somebody who was not going, you know, they didn't care about our safety program. They, they just wanted
0: the cheapest price. This is a great topic where you're going here.
1: Yeah. Well, what I did is I found a competitor who operated that way. And I referred that client who didn't fit our profile to that competitor. Now people go, what, what are you doing? And I said, now think about it for a minute. This guy, I don't like the way he does business, and I'm going to keep him so busy. With other people that I don't want to do business, that he'll never have time to go after my ideal customer. And that guy thought I was his best friend. He loved me. And you know what? At the end of the day, he did very well. This wasn't like a mean thing to do. It really was a situation where I knew who I could serve. I knew who he could serve. I made sure he found as many people that would fit his profile. And that meant he left me alone to go after the people I wanted to do business. And it was a really, really smart way of going about it.
0: So we got to wind up here soon, but you had, you know, it sounds obviously like you had a sales system in place. What other systems did you have in place? What were the key systems that were really the backbone behind this business and your exit?
1: Well, the the whole front end of the business, like, you know, everything front facing towards the customer, none of it can happen by accident. It all has to be well thought out. Operationally, you've got to be able to show up from the moment you roll up to the minute you leave that has to be mapped out. And then in the background of the business, the financials. And that's actually an area that we struggle because neither my wife and I had a strong background in that. Like it took us a long time to just figure out a cash flow statement. But, you know, figuring out where the money is, how it flows into one system and out of another. Some systems make money, some systems cost money, right? Like, for example, maintenance and repairs on your equipment, that's the system to do that systematically throughout the year and it's straight cost to the bottom line but does it save you money in the long run so a lot of the back end was figuring out stuff and it was just doing I mean we had a lot of fights my wife and I we had a lot of disagreements we had this this is not an easy process and it took us like six years to really get it right so you I think you have to have that willingness to to just get in there and to focus on those three key areas right your marketing your operations and your finance department. And then I think the overarching systems that are really important is your your leadership and management. I call that the fourth department and that that's kind of over just laid over top of the foundation there of those operational systems, financial systems and marketing systems. And there was a system to how we ran our business, how we were leaders in that business, how we managed our people. And I think because we even systemized that, it allowed us to kind of direct where we were going there was no there was no guesswork in the direction we were going by the time we got to the end of this this whole journey that we went on
0: so everything fell within a system there was no guesswork
1: that was the goal <laughs> there was lots of gaps <laughs> there was lots of challenges but eventually we got there
0: one thing you just brought up there that was interesting was the management and leadership role. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know that in my business, while things are very well systemized to where I don't really have to do a ton of stuff, I just basically, I'll jump around and check on people. Maybe I'll talk to some customers, sell some projects, kind of lead and manage the sales side of things. I'm not really involved in operations. I do some marketing. I don't need to be there. The company does run without me. But if I go away for too long, people kind of, what's the word? attrition, attrition, I'm not exactly sure if I'm pronouncing it, but people just kind of start falling off of the boat if there's no captain on it. So how did your system fit into place or what kind of leadership and management system did you have? Because you mentioned that and I've never heard anyone talk about that. What did you have and how were you able to kind of keep people together if you weren't there to be the shepherd and keep them together?
1: Well, Why do people quit businesses or quit jobs and go start their own business, right? It's usually because they're thinking to themselves, I can do way better than this idiot, (laughs) right? Well, I mean,
0: I will say for me, it was a combination of A, I can do better than this idiot and B, I can make more money than this idiot because I can do better than him. And well, I guess B, I can make more money than what I'm currently making working for this idiot, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and that's the dream, right? It's, like, it's like, like make more money and have freedom and flexibility in your life. That, that's the dream most entrepreneurs. So I think you got to analyze why most employees are not engaged in their job. The, the current statistics are 70% of North American employees are actively disengaged in their job, which means they're actively like, not <laughs> participating you know, to the level that they should be. Now, why is that? Well, I think the reason is, is that most business, and I'm not speaking to your business, I'm just talking about my experience, but most businesses do not give their employees something to really care about. See, I believe that most people are good people, and most people would just love to be part of a business that had an overarching dream to achieve something that was more significant than just providing them with a paycheck. Everybody needs a paycheck. Like we know the science is clear on this, right? A certain level of income, if you're below that level, brings unhappiness. But we also know that above that level of income, no additional happiness is added to a human's experience. Meaning once you got your bills paid and you've got some money in the bank and your kids are set, you don't get happier by making more money. So it can't just be about a paycheck. And I think the thing that most business owners fail to see is that if they get their heads around the operational stuff, you know, the nuts and bolts of the business, that's one thing, but there's another layer to that. And that is to give people something to care about. And I call that being a leader that dreams. And if you've got a dream that resonates with your customer, that resonates with your employees, it's no longer your dream. Now think about Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King had a dream, his very famous speech, I have a dream. But really, when you think about it, the people, the 250,000 people that were attending, listening to that speech, they probably cared about Martin Luther King's dream more than Martin Luther King did. Because it wasn't his dream, really. It was their dream. And I really think that on on the side of business, and this might sound like, like, wait a minute, we're not civil rights activists. like We're running a contracting business like what is this this guy's gone off the rails but stick with me for this for just a minute let's say that your dream is to help elderly people stay in their homes longer and you really care about the elderly and you really really want to help them maintain independence and have better health because they're home and not you know somewhere else right so you install walk-in bathtubs handrails ramps, no stick flooring, things like that. That's something that a person can get behind. That's something an employee can really care about. And that's something an employee can say, yeah, I'm a contractor. Like I'm a tradesman. I work for this awesome company who just loves taking care of the elderly. And I can have a lot of self-respect in the work that I do. Well, if you take that to its logical end, then people are going to start rising above your expectations. You're not going to have to prod them. You're not going to have to push them. The people who really are meant to work in your business and care about that are going to gladly follow the systems and they're going to come to you and they're going to say, Hey, we got a hole in our system here. We need to fix this because Mrs. Smith almost fell. So you got to find something that motivates people and makes them really care. In our business, we built a lifestyle for our employees. We asked them, what lifestyle do you want? And then we did everything possible to make sure that our business provided them with that lifestyle. There were certain very specific things that were uniform amongst all of our employees. They all wanted the same thing. They all had the same drive. And so we explained to them, look. If you take care of our customers and you provide our customers with a great experience, they're going to keep supporting the business, which is going to support your lifestyle. And then I explained to them, I explained to them, look, Mr. Jones, if he goes up on that roof and tries to do what we do, he could fall and break his neck and die. So we were in the life-saving business. We knew what we were doing. We were professionals. We had the safety equipment, and we were keeping people from going up on their roof and hurting themselves, which was very, very real. Happens all the time. And when you're looking at Mr. Jones and you realize that he's 62 years old and he's almost, almost at retirement age, and if he falls off that ladder and breaks his hip, that's going to destroy his golden years. That's a totally different motivation than do I make $300 today or $350.
0: That is now, what about tying it into their lifestyle? Can you give us some examples of how you're doing that? I, I really like what you 're doing there because as you 're talking about the example from Martin Luther King and you know then kind of going into a contractor that installs you know walk in bathtubs and no stick flooring i 'm thinking, well, you know in my trade business, just like yours, gutter cleaning, exterior cleaning we 're not really doing anything like that so You know, now you're giving a good example there with, you know, somebody's life could be at risk if they're going to start trying to do this themselves. But you also mentioned lifestyle. And what does that look like in terms of your employees and maybe their compensation structure or benefit structure?
1: Well, I'm a big proponent of what I call the profile-first approach. So just like I talked about profiling your customers, you have to profile your people. And we found a group of people that all cared about the same thing. So their lifestyle included having some freedom and flexibility built into it. They wanted to be able to focus on some things that they cared about that had nothing to do with work. So we wanted to present them with the opportunity to do more of those things. And we just found once we figured out the people we liked, we figured out what they wanted to do. And once we knew who we liked and what they wanted to do, we just looked for more people that were just like them who wanted to do the same things. And so, I I mean, I'm not going to go into more specifics than that because it's just, it's up to you to figure out what that combo is. But figure out who you like. Like, think of your best employees and then dig into their lives and find the commonalities between the best people you've ever had working for you. And then double down on making sure the business helps them. I mean, you know, it could be if, if you like, we didn't, we didn't like having contractors or tradespeople that had children, not that we have anything against children. My wife and I have a daughter, but we found over time that if you had children, you had different pressures, you didn't care about freedom and flexibility. And when it froze and you couldn't work for two weeks, you were upset whereas if we employed a bunch of people who didn't have children them and their wives just took off on holidays and went to went or or did something that they wanted to do anyway and so they were grateful when they got 2 weeks off because we got froze out so it just changed the dynamic of the whole team and of what we were trying to accomplish as a group and what we were trying to accomplish as a group no longer became about my wife and I like it's not about whether or not we get to buy a bigger house or drive a fancier truck it's not what it's about. You got to make it about what is it going to do in the lives of your people. And trust me, if you take care of them, they take care of your customers. And if your customers are taken care of, your pocketbook is taken care of.
0: Man, so much good stuff there, Jamie. We're uh, Well, we're at the time point on this, so we're going to kind of have to wind it down. Uh, I think we're definitely going to have to have you back on here for another show. Are you in line with that? Absolutely. Anytime, Corey. Yeah, we'll have you on there because there's so much stuff. I mean, we talked a little bit before this recording and it made some notes, and then we just kind of went all off on something totally different. So there's so much to cover. Jamie, there, what you had, you know, on the employees and how you should kind of get them all together, kind of, and make sure everybody's vision and goal is in line, and then kind of separate your you know, self as the business owner. And this business just makes money from, for me, separating and differentiating that, I guess, from what is in it for the employees and what kind of goals and returns and what they want out of life. That stuff is incredibly powerful there. And I think that's something we all should consider. I know I need to consider it myself. You know, it's something that's kind of an eye opener. So on that note, Jamie, if anybody wants to connect with you, what's the best way of doing that? The best way is to
1: find me on jamieirvine.ca. So that's J-A-M-I-E-I-R-V-I-N-E dot C-A because I'm a Canadian.
0: All right, C-A. Okay, well, I'll be sure to link to this in the show notes and you know maybe some other links that we may have discussed in here. I didn't note anything, but if there's anything Jamie wants to add or any good things you know relevant that I know of to this conversation, I'll put them in the show notes on the Home Pro Success website. So you can always go on there and find it. And on that note, Jamie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You've reached the end of another episode of the Home Pro Success Podcast. Connect with us and join our collaborative Facebook group at homeprosuccess.com.